Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. We just interviewed the man, Robert Greene, the author of our favourite book of all time, Laws of Human Nature. Fuck. It was an honour and it <laughs> was sick. He is certainly the man. I think you're going to get a hell of a lot out of uh, Robert Greene, also the author of The 48 Laws of Power, The Art of Seduction, The 33 Strategies of War, The 50th Law, Mastery, and of course, The Laws of Human Nature. He's an absolute legend uh, and it's, I think it's super important to start to take a look at what we're doing, look beneath the bonnet a little bit and then potentially start to shift some of our behaviours. Mm, there's, there's, there's a couple of moments in this interview where <laughs> shared a little bit too much. <laughs> <laughs> but it was good. Robert Green had some uh, terrific advice for, for everyone listening. So, yeah, looking forward. I think he's a uh, sick man. Uh, the green man. He's, he's the green man. Go in the green room, baby. <laughs> Normally, we don't really pay attention to these more negative aspects of human nature, but we're just wondering why it took so long for us to become conscious of this part of human nature when, after reading your book, some of these things are quite obvious. Well, there are a lot of people who are writing about it. Um, I sort of had to gather a lot of material from different areas, but in general, um, people want to th- don't want to think of the... A lot of human nature, at least the way I describe it, are things that we can't necessarily control. They're the way our brains are wired and our neurological system, things that go back hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years. And so they reveal an aspect to us all that's almost like something we can't control, like a stranger inside of us that's kind of moving us around. And so a lot of our actions, if we really looked at them, we would see that they come from other influences that were, that were not nearly as independent as we think. And I think people are very resistant to that idea. They like to think that they're in control. They like to think that they're rational, that they, when they buy a product, it's because it's their own will and desire that did it as opposed to succumbing to some kind of marketing gimmick or some viral effect that other people are buying the product. Our, our whole self-opinion is tied in with the idea that we're independent, good, autonomous, rational creatures. And I'm trying to show that there's an, a very powerful element inside all of us, dark, deep forces that kind of belie that notion, that reveal that in some ways we are kind of slaves to human nature. And I think people have been very resistant to that idea for a long time. Mm. The book's been out for about uh, almost six months now. Have you got a bit of a sense of what's, which of the 18 areas have resonated most with people? Yeah, I, for some reason, the chapter on envy uh, seems to get a lot of attention from people. They seem very interested in that. Um, the chapter on character, on being able to see people's character and measure it, has also resonated quite a bit. Um, trying to think. Yeah, uh, the chapter, chapter seven on how to influence and persuade people by kind of understanding their self-opinion, sort of the more practical chapters that deal with everyday situations, like obviously the need to persuade people and, uh, you know, be able to judge them correctly before we hire them or we become involved with them. Those are the chapters that have kind of gotten the most attention. Mm, chapter 7 was my favorite. Yeah, I, I really loved uh, the chapter on envy. And after reading some of your work, I've really noticed the the real desire for status inside myself. And uh, I noticed about a month ago, someone with high status came in my presence and all of a sudden, my whole physiology just changed for some reason. And, and I, it was really, really weird. Uh, can you just speak a little bit about what is going on in my human nature for this this really weird reaction in myself? Well, um, there's a couple things going on. So as, a, as you know, I'm kind of referred to the human animal because, I mean, let's face it, we are animals. We descended from primates. And being a social animal like primates or wolves or dogs, um, a lot of what our thinking process involves comparing ourselves to other people. And if you really, really dug down deep and, and looked at yourself in everyday life and, and the, the course of the train of your thoughts, you'd realize that so many of your thought patterns revolve around 
trying to impress other people, what other people think of you, whether they have more, whether you're inferior, whether you're superior. So it's deeply, deeply ingrained in our nature. So um, we're constantly comparing ourselves in status to other people. And this is something that has been noticed among primates. Um, the other thing is that um, a lot of what happens with humans is nonverbal um, on a level that um, we're not so aware of because we're so um, we're so immersed in the world of words. So when you meet somebody, all kinds of emotions and moods are passing between you that have nothing to do with words. Their feelings are very visceral. And you'll notice in the course of a day that who you are and how you behave changes depending on who you're interacting with. So when you meet a person of high status, there tends to be a little a visceral level of a little bit of fear or intimidation. You don't feel quite so confident. You're a little bit intimidated. But when you meet someone like a colleague or someone who might even be in a lower position, you react and become a different person in front of them. So you wear many faces, many masks in the course of a day, and you can't control that feeling like when you come in front of somebody who's who's intimidating or who's powerful. And so there's all this kind of weird communication that is going on between people on this nonverbal level that I want to make you aware of. And a person of power, someone who's, you know, and I write about that a lot about that in my first book, The 48 Laws of Power, they often know tricks to kind of make you feel intimidated. You know, I talk in The 48 Laws about how they don't talk so much. They have a certain air about them. They know how to make you feel a little bit more intimidated in their presence. I just want to make you aware, the reader, of all of these little games that are occurring between us on an everyday level. Yeah, as we said, the uh, <clears throat> uh, the book, you know, sort of broke us down a little bit. Took uh, a couple of weeks of some uh, serious introspection, I guess, to look at what we're doing and, and, <laughs> why, and why we're doing it. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that uh, uh, the other Adam highlighted in me was there's this. Uh, intense uh, or desire or, or feeling that I'm super strategic and super manipulative and it's something I almost thrive on reading books like The 48 Laws of Power was really confirming that self-opinion uh, yeah. but perhaps it's not necessarily true uh, but is that like something along those lines is that something that everybody sort of wants a little bit of extra status or a little bit of extra power uh, or is it just me who's uh, this power hungry wanting to be manipulative but maybe isn't so much um, are you sure about that? <laughs> I think I, I definitely uh, use books like uh, you know Influence and The Forty Eight Laws of Power, and I really get off on reading them. Anyway, I don't know how that goes in, in practice. Well, um, you know, I make the point in The Forty Eight Laws um, that that by our nature we do want power. It's just that the word power has very ugly connotations to it in our culture, so we associate power with people who are in high political position or business who, you know, could be very manipulative and, and evil in some ways or amoral. But I wanted to bring it down to an everyday level. So when you're interacting with your friends, your colleagues or your boss, the sense that you have no power or control over them is very, very depressing, very mm -hmm. debilitating. So every human being wants to feel that they have the ability to influence others. You want to feel that you can, if you're raising a child, that you can mold him or her to some degree and influence them. And the sense that you have no control over the people around you is so deeply disturbing to us that we either consciously, like you do, try and learn how to get this influence, how to perhaps manipulate in some ways, how to perhaps seduce, how to persuade people, or unconsciously, we operate in a very kind of passive-aggressive way we do. We use all kinds of maneuvers and strategies to get that kind of power and influence. But we're able to tell ourselves, "No, I'm a good person. I'm not doing anything like that." You know, I'm. I. I, I have. There's nothing aggressive or manipulative or power hungry about me. And I think I've, in my experience, since I've written these books for many years, those who deny the most vehemently that they're not interested in power, that they hate my book, that they have nothing to do with this. They often tend to be the most manipulative people you'll ever <laughs> They just won't come to terms. They won't be honest with themselves. So at least you're being honest with yourself. 
as far as how many people are more in that conscious category than the unconscious category, probably more, many more people are in the unconscious category, you know, Hmm. but, you know, I mean, look at children. Children can be extremely manipulative when they want to get their way. They know how to use their emotions, how to throw tantrums, how to use, you know, their moods to get their parents to give them what they want. If that's if we notice that kind of behavior in children who are much less able to disguise their feelings, you can better believe that it's all of us as adults still have that deep, deep element within us. Hmm. I've got a friend I, I, I told I was, we were interviewing you during the week and he's also a big fan of all your work. And, uh-huh. um, and just on this topic, the one thing he said, some of the strategies of, of uh, 48 Laws of Power and a little bit in Laws of Human Nature, it might go against his our gut feeling to what we think is is right so you know on one hand you can follow what your gut feeling and your intuition's taking you and whereas some other things like uh you know putting on a mask in certain situations and so forth just might not feel so natural so if you don't feel if your gut is stopping you from doing these kind of things is just there's just does this just mean that you aren't in a in a position to hold a, a lot of power or, or so forth. So what are your thoughts on, on that point of view? Uh, um, you know, I talk a lot in mastery about intuition and there are two forms of intuition. There's kind of the feeling that you have in everyday life about what you want to do or whether you want to see a person or buy a product. And then there's the intuition that comes from years of experience doing something, you know, doing some kind of craft or or business. And that is of a much higher level. It's based on a lot of information that exists in your your unconscious. And ideas come to you out of nowhere. And I'm a heavy believer in that. But in everyday life, your gut and your, your instincts can definitely lead you astray. And so, you know, a lot of the laws in the book, in both books, are somewhat counterintuitive, you know. You, you, you would think, for instance, that in order to persuade people, you just have to be who you are and just be sincere and honest and tell them your idea or your plan and, you know, just just treat them, you know, on a be as candid and, and forthright as possible and explain your idea. That's maybe what your gut tells you. But that's not the reality. That's not how persuasion works. You don't want to be locked inside of your head, inside of your mind. You want to think inside their brain and think of what they want, what they want to hear, what their self-interest is, what their self-opinion is. So your gut will tell you, I just want to, you know, be myself, right? Or in the art of seduction, you're interested in this girl. I'm just going to be who I am, you know? And you think that's your gut, but really what it is is your laziness. Yeah. Mm. It takes great effort to actually want to persuade someone. If you have an idea for a business or, or a film or you need financing, you know, it takes a great deal of effort and work and, and research to figure out your target and what they need and what will appeal to them. And we're generally lazy. And so if you're interested in that particular girl, for instance, you're, you know, you don't want to put that effort that goes into thinking about what will appeal to her, you know, what, what kind of gesture will seem charming and romantic to her as opposed to just being yourself, you know, and relying upon your gut. Sometimes your gut can be right. So for instance, when you meet a person for the first time and you get a kind of bad feeling about them, like there's something fake about them or that perhaps they, there might be something, you know, not up front that there's, there's something a little bit dangerous about them. Oftentimes, those those gut instincts, those nonverbal feelings are very real, and you will not trust them, and then you will go on and you'll become their friend or you'll work with them, and then later on, you'll realize that they were what you originally thought they were, but you didn't trust your gut. So, you know, in my books, nothing is black and white. I don't say 100% this is the way to go. Sometimes your instincts, your feelings have some truth to them. But a lot of times, something else is going on, like your desire to take the path of least resistance to have things very easy for you. So, you know, it's not, it's not one way or the other necessarily. Yeah, love it. 
and probably one uh, good way from one of your chapters, uh, chapter two, I think, on the narcissism and, and empathy. We have this, uh, it can probably develop our intuition by stopping to reflect so much on ourselves and starting to look outwards. And probably that would help in terms of some of the intuition you were talking about. Can you tell us a little bit more about turning that self-love outward a little bit more? Yeah, well, empathy is a big theme in the book. And, um, you know, a lot of people write books about it and use that word. And I don't find the way that people describe empathy very helpful Like, I want to know how it can be something that can be used in everyday life. And my idea is that empathy is not necessarily an intellectual process. It's not something necessarily with a bunch of ideas and bullet points that you can put into practice. Empathy is a mix of a feeling, a visceral feeling, an emotion that it can't put into words and rational analysis. The two must go together. So... You know, when you meet a person for the first time, you have to train yourself to stop your interior monologue and to be very interested, to to be outer directed, to put yourself in their position. So that's the first step. And and I make the point in the book that you're never going to be able to practice empathy unless you are genuinely interested in other people. So really what makes people self-absorbed is they think that they're more interesting than other people. Their thoughts, their ideas, they're locked in that because it's more interesting than, than, than the salesperson at Starbucks or whomever. But I want to make the point that people are actually much more interesting than you think. And you want to try and get into their world. It's like when you go see a movie and there's some interesting character on the screen. You're fascinated by them. I want you to think of the people that you encounter in everyday life as characters in a movie. They are fascinating. They have deep childhood wounds. They have interesting ideas. They have a dark side. They have a shadow. They have strange dreams at night that they never reveal. They wear a mask in front of you, but behind that mask, all sorts of weird things are going on. So you need to be interested in people. And once you're interested in them, you have to use your imagination and sort of see what would it feel like to be them. You know, I'm constantly doing that as a writer. If I'm in a in a in a a, a chemist or something, and I see customers milling about, oftentimes I'll think, what what does it feel like to be that person who's obviously from a different culture or ethnicity or social class than I am? To get inside of that, and what you want to get is the sense of the emotions, the the mood, the feeling, the tone that people give off, not just the words that they say. So, you, you know, when you when you meet someone, they'll talk and they'll blab and blab and blab. But instead of what you're hearing from them verbally, you're getting a feeling from them, whether they're a person that's open and kind of, um, you know, tolerant or are they someone who's closed and rigid and hostile? These are things that aren't verbal, but you're getting the sense from from who they are. So this is a language that you don't necessarily use in everyday world, but is extremely powerful because um, we have the ability to place ourselves in, in the position of other people. Now, that kind of empathy that I'm talking about can lead you astray if you're simply projecting onto them your own emotions, if you're simply using how you what you think is going on in their mind but it's really you that's projecting onto them so it can be dangerous if you don't practice this and if you don't have a degree of skepticism about it and you have a bit of distance but this is extremely extremely powerful um it's like a muscle that you develop on an everyday basis and you need to practice it you need to practice it i want you to think realize that that person you're with your partner that you've been with for five years or more you don't know them they're actually a stranger to you and you have to sort of try and get outside yourself and how you've categorized people and try and get more inside their mindset some of this is just that feeling that i'm talking about and some of it is information such as they reveal about their childhood you observe them and how they react to authority figures that tells you a lot about what their inner life is like. You just need to be a much better observer of people and that will naturally kind of build, help build this empathy that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. 
how uh, how confident are you in uh, in people's willingness to change, especially especially as as we get older? Well, um, it gets harder to want to change as as we get older. Um, you know, a lot of people read self-help books. It's a huge genre. I'm actually, you know, obviously categorized in that. So that means that people are searching for something that will help them change their lives. But a lot of the time people are looking for kind of shortcuts. They want to just sort of hear something. They want easy answers for a change. And so that reveals the fact that people have a desire but the desire isn't really strong enough to lead to any to anything lasting. Sometimes you have to get in a position of desperation. You have to be so frustrated with a problem or so frustrated with yourself that you're willing to try something. But, you know, I do a lot of um, consulting work with powerful people, CEOs, people in politics, etc. And I'm always amazed that they come to me with a desire for change. But really, they just want to hear ideas that that that, that kind of that are already in their mind. Mm. They don't want to hear things that were going to require effort. They don't want to hear things that mean they have to alter how they do things. They don't want to hear things that go contrary to their own opinions about, you know, they think that they are basically have good ideas and strategies and they want me to confirm that. So most people desire change, but they're not serious enough they're not yet at that point of desperation you know and so also as we get older we get the feeling that we know better than others that we have the right idea we get more rigid you know so we lose that ability to want to to be open to other people's ideas so i don't know what the percentage of it is but i know in my books i really 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 want to make an effort to hit you over the head and make you really want to change yourself. So you read the laws of human nature, and, and I'm kind of brutally honest mm. with you. I'm revealing all of these things about yourself that you can't escape. I repeat over and over again. You think other people are narcissists? No, you're a narcissist. You think other people are aggressive? No, you're aggressive. I'm not gonna let you wiggle free. I'm gonna show you who you are, and I hope in doing that, I can spark the desire to change. Because if you don't understand who you are and your own flaws and your own weaknesses, how are you going to be able to change? And so the problem with a lot of self-help books is they flatter the reader. And I don't like flattering the reader. I want to show the reader, you know, the real truth. I want to hold a mirror up to you. Because if you don't understand who you are, how are you going to be able to change yourself? Mm. Yeah, you really, the way you really smacked me over the head (laughs) in a really good way was, I've always probably considered myself uh, not a narcissist and, uh, you know, I'm out there trying to make the world better and, you know, anyone else who isn't out there trying to improve the world in some way, I've always kind of looked down on. But I've noticed it's just me just showing and a values grandstanding, trying to look like a, you know, it's yeah. all in the end, it's all about me. It's not about the right. other people, right? So <laughs> now I'm in this moment, I'm like, fuck. <laughs> I'm seeing it in myself. I've, I've noticed I've damaged relationships previously. People don't like me for this reason. You know, oh. so I'm just hoping that I probably will well, in this moment where I can change, I think, but it's, it's kind of like, fuck, what do I do now? <laughs> So it's not leading to anything necessarily positive? I think it will. I think it's just a moment of cognitive dissonance. And then from here, I'm still in that early stage. And I think in five years' time, right, it's going to be an amazing thing that's, that's happened, been smacked over the head like I have been. But, you know, oh, okay. in this early moments, it's just like a little bit disorientating. <laughs> yeah, well, I had that myself in writing the book, uh, in writing the narcissism chapter. I'm going, damn, I'm pretty narcissistic. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's, it's, I mean, I think it's kind of healthy because now I catch myself in certain situations, you know, and I'm able to kind of be aware of this. I'm not necessarily going to make me a vastly superior person because that's even more of the narcissist inside of me that desires to always be superior to other people. But I think being honest with yourself is actually a healthy and kind of refreshing thing to emotion to deal with yeah absolutely um 
Uh, on the books, you, you sort of mentioned in the, the self-help books that a lot of people are looking for a, a quick fix or the, the one answer to solve all of their problems. Um, and But you said that at the same time, a lot of self-help books are a bit too soft, I guess. They go they don't go hard enough. Or as you're saying, you're really trying to shake people up and go hard into revealing some, some deeper truths, not just what want, they're wanting to hear. Uh, yeah. on, the, on the podcast, we've done a, you know, a couple hundred books now that we've read all to varying degrees on that spectrum of, a, of nice things that we like hearing versus a little bit more tough things. Um, yeah. What do you, like, what, what sort of your views on, you, you're talking about the self-help book industry. Uh, where are people going too light, I guess, on their readers and where, do they, where should they be going a little bit harder? Well, um, you know, I maintain it's a little bit more of an abstract answer here, but I maintain that you can either be approach the reader from the outside or from the inside. So my strategy is always to penetrate inside the mind of the reader, to get behind your defenses and to sort of worm myself into your skin and my thoughts become your thoughts. You know, I'm always trying to do that. And and all of my writing, I do that strategically. So I begin each chapter with a story. A story relaxes you. I'm not preaching at you. I'm not telling you where it's going. You You go along with me. And then I hit you with what I'm what it's about. Uh, I try and do that constantly. So I don't a lot of self-help books have kind of bullet points, ideas and strategies for you can you can do and you can apply in your life. But I tend to think they go in one ear and out the other because you you hear this, but you retain your own way of thinking, your own way of looking at the world. Nothing deep inside of you has changed. It's just like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, you know? And so I want to get inside and literally alter how you look at the world, how you look at people. And in that sense, you know, I think I can have an effect. And so the other thing with a lot of self-help books is people write them very quickly. You know, they're, they, they don't, I spent five, six years on this, this one book. They write them very quickly. They have one idea that 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 they developed that they learned from some new new uh, insight in neuroscience or whatever. They're not deeply thought out. They just are kind of, you know, they have a, a gimmick that they're trying to sell to you, you know. And um, because I don't think that they're deep enough as far as what what they're really trying to do and how they're approaching the reader. I don't think they have great effect. And I've noticed that my books, people hate can hate them, but they have my books have a definite, very strong effect on the reader. Whereas other books, I don't know. I mean, some people love, you know, rich rich man, poor, poor dad or whatever. Poor dad. <laughs> you know, and those, it's an interesting book. But I don't know if it really, you know, and, and there are other self-help books that people refer to. But I don't know if they really, really have a deep and lasting effect, you know, on people. Yeah, and that's always what I'm aiming at. I think, like we were saying earlier, I think sometimes people read for that feeling of that books that confirm their self opinion. So that's the feeling they're getting, rather than going out to that to actually make real change in themselves. Right. Mm. Yeah, and and to answer your question, a lot of books are kind of flattering the reader. They're giving them what they want to hear. They're basically saying, you know, you're a good person and here are some strategies that you need to apply towards the world, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm trying to say, no, you're not basically a good person. If you just are who you are without any effort, without any education, without any discipline, you're actually kind of a wreck. You're kind of, there's nothing good about you. It takes effort to be a good, decent person. It takes effort to, to write a book, to create a business, to have a successful podcast. You have to work on your own flaws and your own weaknesses, and they're definitely there. And so if you don't make people think deeply about themselves, you're never going to get them to, to want to change. You were talking about how you uh, consult with you know big, powerful business people and politicians and they're probably more so, rather than looking for genuine advice, they're probably looking for you to confirm their 
preconceived ideas as to, you know, they want you to basically confirm that they're right. Uh, right. And they're, I, I guess the cynic in me is probably thinking they're just looking for a, someone to blame. You know, if all goes wrong, they say, oh, well, Robert Greene came and consulted and he said I was on the right track. Um, how do you oh. <laughs> how do you, how do you go about uh, helping these people by you know on one hand you're not you can't obviously just completely uh, go against their self opinion but on the other hand you need to get to them to show them that their ideas are probably not right and perhaps there are some better ways to go about it. What's sort of your approach in terms of breaking down their ideas and getting a few new ideas in there instead? Because obviously they're very powerful people, I guess, who are very strong in their beliefs. Well, it's it's very difficult, and I'm not saying I'm great at it, but I, I try. So, <clears throat> for instance, I was on the board of directors of a company called American Apparel, which you had in Australia, for, <clears throat> and the CEO, he was a big fan of my books. He started out hiring me as a consultant, and then he put me on the board of directors. And I could see quite early on that he had definite flaws, that he... Um, he wasn't good at managing people. The business had expanded too quickly and he was losing control of it. And the morale in the company was low. And I saw early on, I gave him some ideas for changing us, and he didn't listen to them. He didn't apply them at all. He was very polite and he pretended to listen, but it became clear to me that this is someone who hired me just to be able to sort of confirm that he was brilliant. So I learned very early on that I'm not going to change this person. And my strategy moving forward was to try and do small things, to try and use, go with his psychology and try and divert him a little bit. So if he suddenly got this really bad idea for how they were going to change all of the stores and make it more of a kind of... Um, they were going to bring in like designer labels, which American Apparel was just about T-shirts. You know, I knew that I couldn't tell him that this was a bad idea. You know, I could say, no, Dove, that's a great idea. I think you're really right on to something. But perhaps, you know, maybe you should think of doing it this way or this way, altering it a little bit. So you, sometimes I've learned that you have to go with them, go with their ideas, go with how they're thinking and then inject little pointed barbs about how they can change it and improve it. And 90% of the time, they don't listen to me, you know? Mm. So it's difficult. It's a constant struggle. But I've noticed that the people, if I've, I can detect very early on somebody who wants to change, who comes to me for real advice, and someone who just wants confirmation of who they are, you know, and um, people who get into powerful positions, particularly entrepreneurs, are often the most stubborn, rigid people of all because they've successful and they think that everything they do is right. And why should they listen to me who's never started to run a business in my life? So I've had much more success with people who are lower down on the, on the totem pole or with athletes. I've worked with a lot of athletes who encounter a lot of power games. They don't, they're very confident when it comes to their athletic ability, but they're not confident when it comes to dealing with people. So there's a level of openness that I detect very early on with, with those I deal with. And depending on how open they are, I alter my strategy. With people who are open, who come to me, who want to change, I will be brutal, I will be honest, I will give them a plan, I will be very practical. I will tell them, this is what you're doing wrong. Let's come up with a very realistic plan in five steps of how you can change. For others who are rigid, like the CEO, I have to go much differently. I have to be much more strategic and much more indirect. Yeah. I have to seduce them. Yeah, love it. One of the one of the chapters we both really liked in one of your popular ones is all about confronting your dark side and developing the shadow side yeah. that we all have deep down. Uh I guess after reading this book, it, it, you know, a lot of it, a lot of that development is for to increase your assertiveness, which is a great tool to have. And you know, you see people with a well-developed shadow side, and it's something that I'm envious of now, and I'm sure a lot of other people are as well. But when you first try and develop this assertiveness and shadow side, it's kind of a little bit awkward, and and uh, it's 
when I've been trying to do it, sometimes I kind of stumbled and damaged relationships. There's been times when it's really worked well. So I guess what kind of advice have you got for the, the very start of developing the shadow, some of the practical things we can be doing? Well, what is it What is it that you did that didn't work, That where you stumbled? Can you give me an idea? So in this case, I had a, a, a friend, a long-time friend, who's always been a bit of a dick, <laughs> just to say. And, uh, you know, it was on my birthday, I said this person's not welcome in my house. And then after that, this person went and uh, gossiped about me and made all these rumors up to my family, uh, to other families and so forth. And then I ended up having to apologize to this person and come back begging. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) That was was pretty awkward. (laughs) But other times it's been great. So, why did you have to come back and beg for him? I mean, what was he? You mean he was going to do more damage? The the cost he was doing behind the scenes was higher than the reward I was getting for, uh, you know, being confronting my dark side and being more assertive to him to this person. But do you want to have somebody like that in your life? Do you want to have them as your friend? Yeah, the the people around him, I do. The ones that he was the the the, the, the other relationships he was damaging. I want them in my life, yes. Not necessarily him. Hope he's not listening. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and it was having an effect on your friends and your colleagues, his rumors? Yeah, some of these, these rumors. So I thought it was easier to ju- just uh, let that let that one go. And, um, and yeah. Well, um, I mean, what, hap- what would happen if you made it clear to him that you were going to fight fire with fire, that if he was going to go nasty with you, you would go nasty with him, and that it's not worth fighting with me. It's not worth doing this to me. I'm not so meek as you think I am. Hmm. And if you're going to go tell friends about this, I'm going to hit back at you in the same way. I'm going to make it really fucking ugly. Hmm. What do you think he would have done? I yeah I definitely could have could have done that. You're a pussy, mate. Uh, maybe went easy on him. I guess <laughs> well, it would have happened. I yeah, he would have he would have shut up big time. I've got I've got something on him I could have used. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that that's really more you know sometimes when you show that you're willing to bend or that they have an effect on you that only emboldens somebody like that. That only makes him feel like he's got power over you. And if you really wanted to show your dark side, because your apology to him wasn't sincere, right? Mm. You hate his guts, or you really, <laughs> don't, you know, at least now you do. Yeah. So um, that's right. You know, maybe what you needed to do was to show some teeth and show that you're not going to take this lying down. Mm. And maybe in the end, he would have respected you more, and maybe you would end up being friends again on some other level. I don't know. Mm. But, you know, it depends. There are people who are very dangerous out there who are very toxic. The toxic narcissists, etc. The people who are extremely aggressive. People who are very deceptive and slippery. And I have a chapter in the 48 Laws of Power called Do Not Offend the Wrong Person. Know Your Mark. And there are people out there that you can offend in some way and they're going to spend their whole lives trying to ruin you especially people who have less to lose than you have to lose. So it's sometimes it's worth doing what you did and backing off mm. and apologizing. Or in the first place, knowing that your rival or enemy, your sort of friend frenemy, to use that word, is like this, you would have maybe thought in advance, maybe it's mm. not a wise idea to piss him off like that. Yeah. You know. So you've got to be flexible in this. But the the dark side is more like just not being so repressed, not being so afraid of yourself, not always trying to show that you're such a sweet, nice, wonderful person and being more of who you are. Um, You know, I mean, of course, you can't do that with your boss. You know, you've got to be strategic. But as I say in that chapter, a lot of how people respond to you is by how they see that maybe you're someone who's kind of fake or false or holding something back. And it kind of has a slightly repulsive effect on people. Whereas those who are more honest with themselves, who are more comfortable with who they are, 
it kind of has an opposite effect. And it doesn't mean your dark side has to mean you go around insulting people or pushing them around. I don't think that's necessarily what I was saying. Mm. It's just being willing to express more of the complete person of who you are. And yeah, some degree of aggression and some degree of standing up for yourself in these situations, like with your friend. So in that particular situation, I would have gone the step further and I would have hit back at this person unless he was going to, unless he had so much dirt on you, <laughs> he was going to do more damage that you could stomach. So it really depends on that. Mm. Uh, yeah, stay tuned. There might be a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll we chat 12 months time and we'll find out. <laughs> I hope he's not listening to this. I think he will be. I think uh... <laughs> he knows now. I think you've just lost the battle, mate. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, I'll, maybe I'll let the dirt out right now on air. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> Robert, your eyes lit up there. <laughs> I love it. Um, one, a bit of a left field one I was, I was thinking when I was uh, reading the, your book and uh, listened to a few other interviews you did uh, was about uh, women in, in power, I guess. I think that leadership and, and power is sort of seen, I guess, or at least in a corporate sense, that the, the leader is the, the ruthless, cold, um, bossy person, uh, yeah. which is generally the route that I guess... Uh, a lot of people fall into. They think, no, I'm not going to be like that leader. But as soon as they get there, they, they turn into some of those negative traits. Um, is there an opportunity uh, for for people to not go that traditional route of powerful, cold, ruthless leadership and um, perhaps use some of these things like a bit of empathy or relating with people and a little bit of seduction, I guess, in terms of you know using the positive aspects rather than just falling into the negative traits of leadership? Yeah, very much so. I have a chapter on what I call authority and a leader who kind of um, emanates authority gets people to do what he or she wants without having to scream or yell. They have so much respect. People respect them, respect their decisions and respect how they treat other people and respect the fact that they make sacrifices for the good of the group and are not just out there barking at other people to do things that they're not willing to do, that when you have a leader like that, you will follow this person without having to be yelled at or scolded. And that's the most powerful form of leadership you can have. So I've seen people who um, dealt with leaders, and I've also worked for them, who are the kind of angry, yelling type who push people around. And all that happens is people get resentful. You know, nobody likes to feel like they're just a pawn in this corporation or in this group and that they that they're just like the slave of the leader. So you might say, yes, boss, I will do that. Yes, I understand. But deep down, you resent him or her. And sooner or later, that resentment will turn into not working so hard, lower morale, gossiping about him or her behind their back. And as soon as they make a mistake, you'll notice in the news whenever a leader who has alienated a lot of people has made it some kind of mistake. All the knives come out. People are mm. extremely happy to tear this person down because they're so resentful of that style of leadership. So a really, really powerful leader needs to understand the power, what is what I would call soft power, you know, and make, I call it make people want to follow you. And um, yes, I talk in there about a lot of uh, female leaders who have that quality. Um, it might seem like more of that style, like Queen Elizabeth, mm. but it's not a, a weakness. It's not a weak thing to to try and step back and think about the people you're leading and be inside their shoes. It's a very strong quality. And there have been a high number of very successful leaders in history and in business who exemplify that kind of style. Um, so, you know, like a Elon Musk or a Steve Jobs, they weren't like that. They were kind of harsh and dictatorial. But someone like Warren Buffett, who's probably the most successful businessman in the history of our planet, he is ex very much like that. He's very empathetic. And so your your job as a leader is to, is to try and get people on your side. You know, I talk in the war book 
about creating a cause, that your group is promoting some very positive idea, that you're on a mission, that you have a positive cause for the world. When people work for you, they want to, to do your bidding because they feel like they're actually contributing and doing something positive. So these are ways to get people to follow you and to join the group without ever having to raise your voice a single time. Mm. Love it. Um, in, in Laws of Human Nature, uh, to jump around a little bit, you, in your chapter, Seize the Historical Moment, you talk about the four different generations. You know, the first one comes along, it's the revolutionary changing things. After that, the generation craves order. The next generation values, uh, uh, pragma, uh, values practical things and the pragmatic. Then people are, are cynical. So I guess what generation do you see we're in right now and what advice do you have for people who want to seize this historical moment right now? Well, are you referring to like millennials? Like I, I assume you, you guys are millennials? Yes. Um, well, I think you're on the verge of, of, a, of a revolutionary generation. So you've inherited um, a world that basically the baby boomers have given you. There's, there's the baby boomers and then there's Generation X that comes in, in between. And the baby boomers who are now in their 60s are sort of beginning to fade back but they have left you a particular kind of world um, that it was at the time very revolutionary in the 60s, but then it turned into something very stale. And so you're at a moment where things are very much changing, where something very definitely is going on under the surface, that some new way of thinking, some new way of relating to the world is happening. So, for instance, um, in the 1920s, young people were very wild and free and carefree. It was the roaring 20s, sex and alcohol and making a lot of money. And then came the Depression and people became quite the opposite. It was all about the group and working. We were, were all poor now. You know, very few rich people are around. We're all in the same boat together. And a kind of a collective mentality took root. And then in the 40s and 50s, that kind of collective mentality turned into something very stale. It turned into, at least in America, in the Eisenhower era, and everybody being a conformist and working for a corporation. And then suddenly in the 60s, everything was overturned and went back to the 1920s, to the wildness, to the revolutionary thing, to get out of that complacent 1950s approach and then the 70s occurred and the 70s at least in america we had terrible inflation and the economy went south but as opposed to the depression where it was all about everyone's poor in the 70s there was starting to be a great discrepancy between rich and poor and it all became about the individual and being a great investor and the entrepreneur and then came reagan in the era of the yuppies on and on. So each generation reacts to the previous one and tries to do something very different. The millennials suffered through the, for in states at least, 9-11, but more importantly, the crash of 2008, which I think had a worldwide effect. And that created a tremendous loss of faith in people who are experts in, in leadership and in the old ways of doing things that I think are exemplified by the boomers. So millennials are much more community oriented. They're much more thinking about what the group wants and wanting to to kind of come to some kind of consensus with the group. They're not so much the hardcore individualists that they people were in the 60s and in the 70s. And so if you're a politician, you have to grasp that fact that there's a new paradigm coming up that people are much more community oriented. That, that maybe, you know, policies are going to be changing in America. Things like, you know, taxing the rich and ideas that seem sort of slightly socialist have great appeal to the millennial generation. You must realize that there's a great shift going on in how people are thinking, you know, and, and you have to adjust to that. Um, if, you're, uh, if you're running a company, you have to realize that this is the new zeitgeist. And this is what's going to be happening in the next 20 or 30 years. So 
seeing that each generation shifts and rebels against the previous one, which is a healthy thing, you can then realize in 10 years, this is what's going to be going on in the world and foresee the and be ahead of the curve instead of being behind the curve. It's exciting times to be on potentially the cusp of a new revolution, especially if you can, as you said, start to look ahead a little bit and, and take advantage of it. Um, it's exciting times. I think times. really the, the, the millennial generation is more in that period of chaos where things are kind of breaking down and people are searching for something. And it really might be the next generation where something really, really mm. drastic occurs. Where some, but the chaotic generation is very, very exciting times. Mm-hmm. You know, I wrote about that in that chapter about the French Revolution, which was that period. So something very powerful is happening yet, but we can't see it. Yeah, I felt so, <laughs> I felt sorry. I forget his name, but that French, the, the the French king before that revolution came, he had a shocking life. <laughs> Short life. <laughs> I love it. We had uh, obviously a, a, a whole a whole bunch of questions, but one thing uh, before we get to our general questions, I want to ask about humility. And in uh, Australia, uh, we've got the, the tall poppy syndrome where if you stand up too tall, you get cut down. So it's, uh, yeah, so it's that uh, anyone who tries to stand up too much or be too much, too, too big or too, uh, too confident, I guess, or too boastful, they, they very quickly get pulled down um, back to the, the norm by everybody else, I guess. So... I don't know if this is uh, an Australia-specific thing where I guess humility is, is very highly valued. But uh, in your book, you talk a lot about how humility has a lot of uh, negatives, a lot of downsides as well in the sense that you know, perhaps we, can't, uh, we don't have the confidence or we don't have the uh, ability to communicate effectively what our strengths or what our ideas or what we want to do. So I think there's definitely some downsides to humility as well. How can we sort of strike the right balance between not being too boastful, but also having confidence? Well, um, I have a chapter in the 48 Laws called Think as you like, but behave like others. And, um, and I talk about it also in the Laws of Human Nature. So there's no va- if that's what your culture is, and that's the value, then it pays to at least have the front of being humble. So you need to play that game. You need to play it because otherwise you're going to suffer, and I don't want you to suffer. If you have the tall poppy syndrome, you be aware of it. There's not going to be any good that will come from flaunting your greatness or making people feel envious of you. You're going to, your life is going to be, you won't last very long, right? So you have to play the game. You have to play the appearances. You have to appear. You have to be self-deprecating. You have to not drive your Rolls Royce through the streets of Melbourne. Maybe you, you know, you, you get a, a less ostentatious car. Maybe you don't dress as nicely as you want to in certain situations. You don't flaunt your success. But at the same time, deep within, you know that you're simply playing a game. You're wearing a mask. It's not who you really are. You're doing the humble game because that's what's required of you in Australian society. But inside, you don't take that seriously. You know that you want something else. You know that you want to create a great business that will be very successful. You want to write a book that will get millions of readers. You want to create something big and powerful. You're ambitious. You're not afraid of your ambition. So in other words, you have some distance from the values of your society. You know that you have to play the game but deep inside you don't take it seriously. So what happens with the humility game that will happen with a lot of people is they'll play that part up, but they'll also take it seriously and they'll realize, oh, my ambitious side, I don't like it. I'm not comfortable with it. You know, I better not show, I better not even try very hard. I'm not going to start that business because, you know, that's a part of me I don't like. I want you to have that distance from you. You don't have to think like that. You know that you're determined that you're destined to make great things to do to accomplish stuff and you have a hell of a lot of ambition you work very hard so that's who you are inside but you don't you're not afraid of having to play the game out in public so you kind of split yourself a little bit from within does that make sense definitely it's fantastic definitely. um awesome robert so as we as we uh begin to wrap it up now what have been some of the most influential books on your life and career 
Oh, it's a hard question to answer because um, over the course of these books, I've read like 2,000 of them. I mean, yeah. like for the human nature, I've read three or 400 books. Wow. You know, and so so obviously for the 48 Laws of Power, uh, Machiavelli played a very important role. The Prince, but more important, The Discourses, a book that a lot of people don't read, but it's very, very interesting. So obviously Machiavelli played a huge role in that early work. And then, uh, and also in that book, Baltazar Gracian, who's kind of like a Machiavellian type person, and, and his advice about how to survive in a court environment had a big impact on me. And then when it came to like uh, books, my book on strategy, um, Sun Tzu's Art of War had a very big impact. Von Clausewitz's book on war and biographies of Napoleon, etc. So each book had a kind of sort of an icon, you know, for it. I mean, mastery, there wasn't like really one book. There were lots of very excellent books that are out there. But, you know, uh, when I was a young man, um, I read a lot of the philosopher Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, and he's had a huge impact on how I think. And you'll notice in all my books, I'm continually quoting him because he had such an effect on me when I was in high school. Um, and there are other books, you know, a lot oftentimes the books that you had a big impact on you when you were 15 or 16 are the ones that are really stay with you your whole life. So I remember there were some novels of, of Dostoevsky, the Russian writer. There was a writer here in the States called Carlos Castaneda who wrote books kind of about power, but sort of spiritual power that had a deep impact. So those are kind of the books that, you know, really influenced me. Awesome. Fantastic. And the other thing I always like to ask is uh, what's sort of coming up on the on the horizon for Robert Greene? We've heard in a few other interviews, uh, perhaps the next book's on its way, perhaps a TV project. Well, the TV project is, is really irritating because I keep Hollywood's always sort of teasing me with the idea that they're going to do of a book, a TV version of the 48 Laws of Power, and it never happens. That sounds phenomenal. So, <laughs> sounds amazing. <laughs> I can't wait. Huh? I hope it happens. It yeah. sounds phenomenal. Yeah. Well, um, there's there's a, a, a celebrity here whose name I won't say, who was, who was optioning the book, and we're working with a production company to do a kind of an anthology series based on the 48 Laws of Power, but I haven't signed the contract yet. So, you know, I, I I really don't know that might happen. And believe me, if it happens, you'll know about it because <laughs> yeah. um, it would be it would be very interesting. Mm. It would be fun. So that's a possibility. And then, um, you know, I'm starting to gather material and ideas for my next book, which is kind of going to go in a slightly different direction, I think, for me. I don't know if you re knew this, but about five and a half months ago, I suffered a stroke which is, you know, obviously had a deep impact on me and my life and what I'm able to do. And it was a very close brush with death. You know, um, I'm kind of lucky that I'm alive here talking to you now. And so in my chapter 18, I kind of talk about that in the laws of human nature and how we confront our mortality, which is a deep impact on who we are. And I talk in that last part about the sublime, about turning our awareness of death into actually something very positive and very self-affirming and very therapeutic. Mm -hmm. Well, I have an idea of taking a book that, that does that on a much deeper level and kind of immerses you in, you know, um, this, this world, this, this way of thinking that will kind of lift you out of the banal day-to-day -day lives that we have and make you realize how truly sublime and awesome it is to even be alive. Mm -hmm. And so it is going to be a self-help book, but it's going to be a little less, it's a little more, it's a little more spiritual, I'm afraid, to use that word. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that sounds incredible. I mean, we'll, yeah. yeah, looking forward to that one for sure. You know, we'll think like things like mountain climbers and the experiences they have when they come close to death or athletes yeah. who deal with near-death experiences. These, they have incredible things to say, incredible lessons. And so I'm kind of going deeply into that. Yeah. Uh, last um, 
Christmas, I stepped on a on a bee and my foot <laughs> my foot swelled up for a week. I was never allergic to bees before, and I, I got put onto some steroids as well. So that's something else I've I've learned from you, not from your book, but just to be careful around bees from now on. How's you, you your? Heard, you heard about what happened to me? Yeah, and uh, bee I sting in my neck. Yeah, I didn't even realize that it could uh, cause such a big um, impact. But I'm glad to hear that you're on the on the mend. I'm yeah, I'm definitely on the mend. You know, yeah, I, I I'm not allergic to bees either, but it caused this insane reaction that just inflamed my whole neck area. And then the blood clot that caused my stroke occurred in exactly the spot where the bee had stung. I don't know if it was a bee. It might have been a yellow jacket. I don't mean to blame all the bees. (laughs) Bees are shocking. (laughs) I love it. Well, thank you so much for for talking to us today. And uh, Where can people find more about about you and obviously your phenomenal books? Um, Well, I have a website. sort of comes from my first three books. It's called powerseductionandwar.com. The and is spelled out. So powerseductionandwar.com. And there you'll find links to the book I did with 50 Cent, which I don't know if people know about, The 50th Law and Mastery and the new book. So that sort of that sort of combines every, all the sites, that I, all the books that I've done. So I would go there. And you'll find my Twitter account and Instagram and all that there. <laughs> 